And welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Our show addresses the weekly portion of the Torah, known in Hebrew as the Parashah. Each and every week, a selection determined by tradition of the five books of Moses, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, is read in synagogue sanctuaries throughout the world. This week, our parasha is entitled Naso, and it comes from the second selection in the fourth book of the Torah, known in English as Numbers, or in Hebrew as Bamidbar. Our portion um, is a continuation of the previous uh, parasha in which Um, There continues to be a completing of the head count of the children of Israel taken in the Sinai Desert. Initially, a counting of over 600,000 men uh, of the age to be in the military was identified. This week's Torah portion tells us that there are 8,500 Levite men between the ages of 30 and 50. And they are counted in a tally of those who will be able to do the actual work of transporting the tabernacle. Following the accounting and the head count, God communicates to Moses the law of the Sota, the wayward wife suspected of unfaithfulness to her husband. Also given in this parasha is the law of the Nazir known as the Nazarite, who forswears wine and lets his, or in this case her, hair grow long, and is forbidden to become contaminated through contact with the deadly body. Aaron and his descendants, known as the Kohanim, are instructed on how to bless the people of Israel. The leaders of the 12 tribes each bring their offerings for the inauguration of the altar. And though their gifts are identical, each is brought on a different day and is individually described by the Torah. This is not a rather lengthy parasha, but it's filled with some interesting aspects of Israelite religion, and some of which continue to be uh, part and parcel of the Jewish people today, and some of which have fallen by the way due to historical circumstances. With me this morning to discuss Parashat Naso is Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg, Senior Rabbi of Temple Israel of Ottawa, Canada. He has begun his uh, Rabbinate in Ottawa in 2019. Rabbi Michael Berg is one of the few rabbis native to Canada, born in Montreal and raised in Vancouver, Canada. He was ordained a rabbi in the Reform Movement in 2008. After ordination, Rabbi Michael Berg served Temple Shalom in Vancouver 
and he served as associate rabbi of Temple Sinai in Toronto. He uh, served there for eight years until his move to Ottawa. It is a great joy to welcome my colleague, Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg, uh, to chat with us uh, this morning about Parashah Naso. It's great to be with you, Rabbi Garden, and it's great to work alongside. And I, I know you typically uh, have me in the fall around Thanksgiving when all our American friends are uh, eating turkey, so I'm privileged to be here in spring for a change. <laughs> uh, well, it's a hard spring in Ottawa right now. Uh, lots of rain, lots and lots of rain. Um, I thought we might begin, since the Torah portion begins with the counting of the Levites, Perhaps you can remind our listeners as to whom the Levites are and what their role was as the Israelites progressed through the desert. Sure. Well, to take us back to last week, um, we started this new book of the Torah. We're in the the, the book of uh, Numbers. Um, And now, as we see for a second week in a row, we see a real focus on numbers, that this is one of those Torah portions that accountants uh, particularly like, because it's all about being very precise and doing um, an an accounting of of who we are and who we represent and what our roles are. And so we, we recognize that the Israelites would have been divided into tribes. And what we are focused on in these initial chapters is how large they are, with an emphasis on military might. Uh, and that helps us understand, even as we think about our modern-day census, what their needs would have been, who they represented, and in particular, what did they do? Because one of the things that we witness is that each of the tribes, each of these groupings that would have been uh, descendants of uh, of Jacob's children, um, they had very specified roles. They had very specified functions. And today we'll talk about um, the Levites. We'll also um, talk about the Kohanim. And these were two categories. These were two tribes that really functioned to be the spiritual liaison for uh, for the people. They were the uh, go-to between the people and God. They served to take care of uh, spiritual needs very much in terms of their purpose. They elevated the spirits and conveyed blessing. Um, And so as we looked at them, we really recognized these categories of people and recognized that they had very specific um, roles. It's interesting for the two of us to be doing this as reform colleagues. Um, And in our reform setting, we don't emphasize so much um, Kohanim and, and, and Levites in, in ways that our more traditional friends do, and that we speak much more about how we're all the same, about how uh, every responsibility is open to anybody who would like to, to partake. Uh, but today our focus is something else. And today, as we look to ancient days, we recognize that specifically connecting to God would have relied on the Levites and also the, 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 the Kohanim, and we get to see how they really lived that uh, those responsibilities. That's a great introduction. Let me remind the audience, our listeners this morning, that there was such a thing as the tribe of Levi. Moses and Aaron were born of the tribe of Levi. And we're told that in the book of Exodus, right at the very beginning. 
For Moses, it becomes quite unimportant as the story evolves. But for Aaron, it becomes the primary um, identifier of his role in the five books. But the Kohen, the Kohanim are not of, uh, are not an individual tribe. So how do we get from the general tribe of Levite to something called the Kohanim, which in the book of Leviticus, the previous book of the Torah, are identified with the notion of high priesthood. Oh, you're asking. So as as we do with any group, that we do have groups within groups. We have we might even call them subgroups. And in this case we seem to be um, going from um, holy to holy of the holy. And so we have within the group of Levites, we have this, uh, this select group of, uh, of Kohanim, uh, mainly relatives of, uh, of Aaron, and they're going to serve the, the, the most important roles in, in um, I was going to say nurturing, but in really in facilitating the work of the Mishkan in the sacred tabernacle and serving that real direct connection to God and in conveying blessing in the most um, precise of ways. Their primary, not primary, perhaps their most important responsibility is on the Day of Atonement, on uh, what we now call Yom Kippur, in which the Torah tells us that they make expiation for uh, the entire people of Israel, and they make expiation for all the priesthood, and they make expiation for all of uh, themselves. And while we might think of it as an honor to serve this elevated role, as you bring up, a primary function would have been facilitating the sacrificial offerings. It actually would have involved getting one's hands literally dirty, as they um, as they would have facilitated the the slaughtering of these animals and different things to make offerings to uh, to the eternal. Um, the temple is destroyed in seventy of the common era, and with it, one would have thought that the categories of Kohen and Levi uh, were lost. But you alluded to a moment ago that the more traditional co-religionists in Judaism somehow maintain a touchstone to these ancient categories. Perhaps you could share with our listeners how they do that um, during the service and how that is uh, maintained uh, before we look at one of the aspects of the Kohanim that our listeners may be aware of that they're not even aware that they're aware of. I always find it fascinating, and it speaks to our traditional roots, and it speaks to our uh, our passing of these traditions, of these values from generation to generation, that it's not uncommon, in particular, when um, someone has an honor to read Torah, uh, to share that they are a descendant of Kohanim or they are a descendant of Levites. Sometimes we witness that in their um, anglicized name, which might be Kohn or, or, or Levi. Um, sometimes their name has evolved over time, but they know that traditionally they, they date their, their lineage um, to the tribe. 
um, of co uh, of being a Cohen or being a Levite. And where this comes out is in particular around Torah services. Um, in our more traditional setting, there would be an aliyah. There would be a blessing that would be reserved for someone of uh, for someone who is a Kohen. Um, and there would also be an aliyah reserved for someone who is um, a Levite. Um, so again, in the reform setting, we're, um, we don't uh, look to that um, terminology and that lineage. But in more traditional settings, um, we almost do have select groupings. Um, and you can't become one of these things. You're really born into them and you inherit them. It's also evident in one's name. So in Judaism, typically our Hebrew name would be, in my case, Harav Daniel, Rabbi Daniel, Ben Ephraim Ben Moshe, Ben Ephraim Ben Shoshana, excuse me. Um, so Daniel, son of um, Fred and, and, and Rose. But if I was of a Kohen lineage or a Levite lineage, it would also be included in my uh, in my Hebrew name, so it would be something that I would carry with great pride in um, in taking note my my lineage and my connection to this um, to this important grouping. So one of the honors reserved for Kohanim and Levites, or the historical descendants of that biblical grouping in modern Judaism, is the first or second blessing of seven that are offered in a traditional service, blessings over the Torah. But there is um, something else that's reserved for the Kohanim, and that's the uh, Kohen's blessing, the traditional priestly blessing. And many of our listeners um, who grew up watching Star Trek remember that Dr. Spock would often raise his hands and uh, create a uh, V between his uh, second, third, and fourth, and fifth finger, which was, uh, of course, um, representative of the priestly blessing, though he didn't identify it as such. And so what is this priestly blessing? It's in this week's Torah portion, in fact. So in this week's Torah portion, we read some incredibly holy words and maybe rabbi will let's look to these words let's uh let's uh, let's take a let's take a look at the hebrew so we are on verses chapter 5 verse oh, excuse me i think it's actually chapter 6 let's see i think it's chapter 6 here it is Chapter 6, verses uh, 22 to 27, I, I'm, I'm looking Correct. at. Correct. So, And God spoke to Moses, So, speak to Aaron and his sons, and you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, and we have these words, The Lord will bless you and protect you. And some of our uh, non-Jewish listeners will may remember these words, or they may resonate as they're often part, um, parcel of some Christian services. And then it continues, um, the Lord deal kindly and be graciously with you. And, uh, and finally, 
and God bestow favor upon you and grant you peace. So first of all, I want to note that before we even look to the um, the meaning of the words, even the presentation of the words in itself is beautiful. I, I, I would say it's, it's poetic, it's pleasant to listen to, and I would say so both in the English um, and in the Hebrew and in you know any language that we so choose to um, to translate. And so we recognize in these words, um, as presented, that they really aspire to create an experience. Um, they look to convey um, blessing, wholeness um, to the um, to the recipient that uh, that um, Aaron will offer on their behalf. So earlier in the year, we read that Aaron raised his hands at the conclusion of the consecration ceremony of the priests, and he blessed the community of Israel. We don't know exactly what he said, but rabbinic commentators suggest that these were his words. And these words have come to be known as the priestly blessing. Um, If we're looking more colloquially, what, what do they look to do? They look to affirm that God blesses and protects, deals kindly and graciously, and bestows favor and grants peace. As we look to these words, the clauses, they convey a message um, of a monarch, of a monarch holding court. And of course, in this case, we're not looking to a human monarch, we're, we're, we're looking to God. And we look to the sovereign as bestowing favors and granting the subjects blessings of royal um, friendship. And again, as we look to these words, we recognize that they were really crafted quite carefully. This is especially apparent in the Hebrew. And so the uh, the first words, they point toward the future. And so the hope that coming days will be um, truly best blessed for the recipient. In each of these clauses, we, uh, we witness God's name, um, attributing God as being an essential force to, uh, to conveying this um, blessing. There's a beautiful pattern to them that they begin with three, they expand to five, and then they get to seven. There's even an increasing pattern of consonants and um, and syllables. And I would suggest that as we look to these words, they're very orderly. They seem to work up to a climax. They tell a story. And so the hope, never mind with the definition of the words, but with the experience of receiving them, were really intended to be, no matter where we started, to come to a place of completion, to come to a place of shalom, to be better off than before we started with these uh, with these blessings. I think you capture the real essence and beauty of this blessing. Uh, traditionally, um, the Kohen offers this blessing uh, upon the congregation on special occasions, but over the course of time, um, the power of these words, and as you so eloquently described, um, the poetry of these words led them to be used at the end of almost all uh, religious services. Um, I actually heard them uh, two weeks ago as I was participating in a Baptist service and uh, on Pentecost, and the minister concluded the service uh, reciting this. Um, he didn't identify it as coming from the book of Numbers, and I wondered if his congregation knew that, in fact, these were the Hebrew 
uh, blessings assigned to the Kohanim, but the power was obvious even to this non-Jewish congregation. Um, and and to, to, to share a little bit more. Um, please. For our visitors who have visited, uh, who have been to Israel, and uh, in particular, if you go to Israel and Jerusalem, if you've gone to the Israel Museum, there's an extraordinary plaque where one can witness these words. It's dated to the 7th century BCE. And it's believed that this amulet would have been worn around the neck of a pious Jew approximately 2,600 years ago. So how amazing to note that these words, not only in spoken uh, basis, but to wear them, um, meaning to uh, to have the words um, inscribed on uh, on something that we hold close to our heart, that in itself was intended to convey blessing, to convey protection, and how extraordinary to now witness these words having made this passage of time. You know, I had forgotten about that display, but as you remind me of it, I wonder out loud whether it was um, an early um, iteration of the mezuzah that um, we see around the necks of many members of the Jewish community. Um, today, um, we may wear something that has a different Hebrew uh, prayer in it, but perhaps uh, 2,700 years ago, um, this is what people wore as an amulet seeking God's protection. Thank you. That was really quite lovely, and I appreciate your um, description of the poetry, and I'm sure our listeners did. Um, there's one other category of um, religious leader that's mentioned in this week's Torah portion, and that's the Nazarite. Um, the most famous Nazarite in the biblical epic is, of course, Samson. And many of our listeners know the story of Samson. And while they may not remember that he was a Nazarite, they will recall that he loses his power when his hair is cut. Um, and um, perhaps we can conclude our conversation this morning chatting about what is the Nazarite and interestingly enough, I want your take on the fact that um, the text is very clear that it's a category of religious leader that's open both to men and women. So how do you understand this unusual insertion uh, into the description of the role of the priesthood? It speaks to our commitment to our various roles and in, in various different professions. As, as we enter, as we make that, that step, we often pledge or sign, certainly when we, um, not we, but when one enters parliament um, as, a, as a governing official, one makes a, a, a pledge. And so as I look to the, uh, the ancient role as a Nazarite, it, it appears to me as a, as a pledge of, a, of, of allegiance, a promise to serve God in extraordinary ways, to go beyond um, that which is normal, to demonstrate um, devotion, 
to take one's commitment to a level that understandably so is, is, is not the everyday commitment, but represents one's um, love and commitment um, in, this, in this unique way. Perhaps in a similar way, if we were to take go on a silent retreat and to promise to not utter words um, for a period of time. Or there are various vows that we might take around food um, to say that we sort of won't eat this for a period of time, generally for a sense of health. In this case, we witness a voluntary commitment to, um, to serve God. In this case, often focusing on, on hair and, um, and alcohol as being uh, distinguishing factors. Um, as I was uh, rereading this section on the Nazarite, it struck me that, as you indicated, the category of Levite and Kohen is hereditary, which would seem to limit the opportunities um, for Israelites to serve God. The Nazarite has no hereditary uh, limitation to it. It's a vow that's taken by both men and women. And it struck me as um, one of those unusual democratizations of Jewish uh, religious leadership. That on one hand, we have these hereditary leaders. Um, and one would think that leadership would then be limited to them. But the Torah seems to say, no, um, you can be a role model, a religious role model, simply by what you do and your pledge, as you suggested. We make lots of pledges in terms of our behavior and altering our behavior for select periods of time. The Nazarite had a term of office. Um, that they made this pledge from. The Torah is not uh, direct about the length of time, but one thinks that perhaps um, it could be up to a year or it could be longer. Um, And in doing that, it seems to be allocating to each and every individual the opportunity to transform their relationship to the deity. And I'm struck by how unusual that is in antiquity. And how beautiful to juxtapose this notion that on the one hand, you might want to be a Kohen or a a Levite, but that door's not open to you. But that doesn't mean that other doors aren't open to you. Great. (laughs) And so we witness this um, this, um, dichotomy of uh, finding uh, finding one's way in. Yeah, I think, um, as you said that, um, one door closes, but another door opens. Um, And interestingly enough, um, what the Nazarite does during this term of commitment is uh, not clearly described. It doesn't seem to be a liturgical role. It seems to be a role that um, exists purely for the elevation of one spiritually. 
It, it makes me almost think about our role, Rabbi. And uh, sometimes people ask, how did you decide to become a rabbi? And <laughs> I often wonder, hmm, how did I decide that? As we look to these ancient uh, Nazarites, perhaps we could reflect on our own uh, roles and responsibilities. What a great way to end our conversation, <laughs> reflecting on both these ancient leadership roles and the roles of modern religious leadership. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Daniel Michaelberg of Temple Israel of Ottawa, Canada. I want to thank him for sharing his wisdom and his insight with us this morning. You can find a podcast of Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts on iTunes, or you can download it from the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.